We're in Daniel chapter 2. I'm calling this series Living in Exile. And uh, we are citizens of another kingdom scattered amongst the kingdoms of the earth to be salt and light like yeast that infects a dough. You are the infection to the beasts of the earth. So get contagious. Learn from this adversary. You need to infect the world with godliness. But the world always wants to infect you with itself. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It says, In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, the nation who destroyed the, northern, the southern kingdom of Israel in 587 B.C., and we are now in exile. The Jewish people, many of them, have been taken to live in Babylon. In the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams that his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had such a dream that my spirit is troubled by the desire to understand it. The Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll reveal the interpretation. The king answered the Chaldeans, This is a public decree. If you do not tell me both the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you do tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards in great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time, let the king first tell his servants the dream. Then we can give its interpretation. The king answered, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see I have firmly decreed. If you do not tell me the dream, there is but one verdict for you. You've agreed to speak lying and misleading words to me until things make a tur- take a turn. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, There is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with mortals." Because of this, the king flew into a violent rage and commanded all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The decree was issued and the wise men were about to be executed and they looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them. Then Daniel responded with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the royal official, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time, and he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God from age to age, for wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, deposes kings, and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my ancestors, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power, and have now revealed to me what we asked of you, for you have revealed to us what the king ordered. This week I've reflected again on this story. And I realized that there's a worldview that Nebuchadnezzar was trying to break through. 
It's one thing to tell somebody about a dream or an impression or even a set of options that stand before you and then to ask that person for advice on which one is the better road or what maybe needs to be done. That's one thing. It's quite another thing to ask one who claims to hear from God to tell you something that only God could tell you. Those are two entirely different universes. Why do you think Nebuchadnezzar asked this of his wise men and his magicians and his Chaldeans? Those are all just the prophets. Israel would call those prophets. Some scholars have suggested that Nebuchadnezzar was upset by his dream, but he couldn't remember it. <laughs> Do you think that's what was going on? Have you ever woken up and you knew you had a significant dream, but you couldn't for the life of you remember what it was about? And so some people think he did this because he didn't know the dream, but he wanted someone to remind him of what it was. I guess that's possible. But I think that Nebuchadnezzar believed that this dream was significant and that he was cautious about sharing its contents with anyone who might misinterpret it, because as we'll see next week, the dream involved the total destruction of Babylon. I think this request also reveals that Nebuchadnezzar sus suspected that the religious institutions of Babylon, with all their prophets, were smoke and mirrors. Maybe Babylonian religion was fine for the normal humdrum, of everyday life, but in a situation in which Nebuchadnezzar needed real answers, he needed a real prophet. I suspect he figured this request would shake out the false ones. <laughs> you know, the people who just hung around and they always had a word from God, but when it really comes down to it, they're not really the real deal. He probably figured at s there's got to be some true prophet in my kingdom. I mean, it's Babylon, after all. It's the largest kingdom in the, on the earth at the time, full of wealth and power, conquering every nation. Every there's got to be a true prophet in this place, right? So he shook the tree. Nothing fell out. Nothing except Daniel. But that's not what Nebuchadnezzar expected. As we journey through this first interaction between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, this is the first time we ever see them interacting in the text di directly. We're going to consider deism. We're going to talk about what it really means to starve for the presence of God. And we're going to talk about what it means to have a faith that is severe. A severe faith. I want to talk first, though, about the seductiveness of deism, and I'll define it. This is Daniel chapter 2. Uh, I'm, it's verses 1 to 11 this point comes out of, but I'm just going to read verses 10 and following. The Chaldeans answered the king, there is no one on earth who can reveal what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. For Israel, those were prophets. They had different things and, you know, in Babylon. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult and no one can reveal it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals who aren't here. It's easier to believe in a disconnected deity. That's what deism is, a disconnected deity. It's easier to believe in a creator who set up all the rules by which we live on earth and now he is separated and standing above it all, watching it all unfold. That's easier to believe that. There's such regularity in nature. There's such cause and effect built into our experiences of the world. 
that it's simpler to believe that our experiences on earth are explainable by natural laws and impersonal forces. It's easier to believe that. It's simple to believe that God created the world in such a way that godly behavior will be rewarded in time and that evil behavior will be punished in time. It's easier to believe that's the nature of reality. Then, when blessing comes, we can say, well, that's the way God designed the world to work, and we can give him thanks for the blessing that came. But the real reason I have blessing is because I sowed to the Spirit. Right? And when judgment comes, then we can just say that's a natural consequence of living out of balance. And that's the way the world lives, by and large. And it is seductive because it's simple. And this perspective declares that God set the whole thing up. He designed it carefully. He got all the math done and all the physics, and he got it all set up moral too. And now, he doesn't meddle in it anymore. He doesn't have to. It's perfectly designed to correct itself. And if you believe that, then life can be somewhat easy to predict. So it's like catnip to Christians because that way of understanding things is very easy to predict. And when something unexpected happens, we just assume there's always a cause that we can eventually discover. It's a Sherlock Holmes world at the bottom. Everything has an explanation if we just seek it I know we don't claim to believe those things, but many of us live like they're true. Where it really shows up, this deism, this belief that God is disconnected, that he's really not meddling in the world, that everything is just cause and effect, reaping and sowing, action and consequence, those sorts of things. The place that this shows up most clearly for most Christians is in the realm of judgment. Our feelings about whether or not God will ever punish, whether he will ever discipline, whether he will ever judge us outside of the laws of nature, of cause and effect. After we've died, sure. But in this life, never. We say things like this, mercy always wins over judgment. Have you heard that? Mercy always wins over judgment, which is another way of saying God will not do anything in real space and time. Mercy is letting things go. Mercy is giving more time. So if mercy always wins, then inactivity wins over activity. God will never do anything because he's merciful. Cause and effect, reaping and sowing, mercy and forbearance. These are the theological foundations of our day. You might say this is what the church is built upon in many places. God is more of a concept than he is a person. He's more like a force of nature than he is an agent. It's seductive to live in a closed system in which God will never speak out of turn in which he will never act out of bounds, in which he will never judge or condemn and never cut short the time we need for our plans. It's seductive to live in that world. And for many Christians, God is simply another way of speaking of natural law and the reality of death. And that's all he is. 
And whatever we might confess with our mouths, our bodies and our behaviors speak the truth about us. And this was religion in Babylon, more or less. Officially, they believed in many gods. But the prophets of their religion, the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, were apparently aware of the fraud being perpetrated. However often they might have convinced themselves they were real and true believers. And King Nebuchadnezzar turned the whole system on its head by requiring at least one of those gods to act as a personal agent in real space and time and actually speak. And even more, he was willing to put his own prophets' lives on the line in his search for a real, personal, involved God. And that's what he was looking for. He was starving for God. That's our second point. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 12. Because of this, the king flew into a violent rage and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The decree was issued and the wise men were about to be executed and they looked for Daniel and his companions to execute them. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar was ready. It's quite a dream he had, huh? He was ready to tear the entire system of religion down in the entire nation of Babylon if he couldn't find one person who could speak reliably for a god. And I say it that way because he's a Gentile. He doesn't believe in the God of Israel. So he's just looking for any God. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's a pagan king. This dream had him shaken up. And shaken up enough that he was willing to execute every person who claimed to have interaction with a deity but could not tell him what only a God could know. That's quite a test. Was he testing God? Or was he testing the prophets? This is how the psalmist explains it. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, Where is your God? And this is the point at which we find King Nebuchadnezzar. So what is the response? How do we journey forward when we come to that, well, you're going to need a severe faith. Look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested that the king give him time and he would tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his home and informed his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who we will know later as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions with the rest of the wise men of Babylon might not perish. So Daniel goes and asks his friends to pray for a miracle. A real miracle. A miracle that could not be fabricated. Have you ever been asked to tell someone what they dreamt? That could go wrong quickly. And know that there's a sword for you. If you get it wrong, even worse. True faith. The faith that Daniel needed in this moment requires God. It cannot work if there isn't one. The law of Moses couldn't even be obeyed without God. You can go through the list of commands in the law of Moses that were hardest for the Israelites to obey and all of them required faith that believed in miracles. God commanded that every seventh year, well, first of all, every seventh day, the people were not to work at all for their living. They weren't to harvest their crops. They weren't to milk their, their cattle or their goats. They weren't to collect any food. They were to do none of that sort of thing and then believe that God would take care of the animals. 
and he would take care of the crops and he would take care of the business of that day that's a huge act of faith if god doesn't come through once a week maybe you survive it but then he required every seventh year that they not farm that they not work their animals that for an entire year they ate only what the ground naturally produced now did israel do it no people didn't do it because if god, they would need god to come through no one could survive naturally according to natural law by doing nothing for an entire year nobody could survive that if god didn't come through miraculously they couldn't obey the law and so they didn't obey the law the only laws they obeyed are the ones that would work whether there was a god or not but the laws they didn't obey were the ones that required there to be a god in order to work and if you look through the church today and most lives of christians the things we're not doing are the things that require there to be a god in order to do them what happens if you turn the other cheek and take an insult and don't fight for yourself? What happens if you give to whoever asks of you? What happens if you go beyond the law in terms of generosity? Well, you're going to be broke, you're going to be a doormat, and you're going to be taken advantage of. So is it no wonder people don't do it? Because we would actually need God to step up and be with us if we lived that way. There's no way to live in a deistic world like that. And that's the problem with Jesus' teachings. When he says, don't worry about tomorrow, worry only about today. Well, that's not the way you make your way in the world. In order to live that way, there'd have to be a God going before you. And most of us don't believe there is. At least we don't behave like we believe there is. Faith doesn't simply allow for God. True faith requires God. It can't operate without him. None of the laws of Moses and most of the laws of Jesus, well, most of them anyway, won't work if God's not real, if he's not actively involved in the world. This is what it means to walk by faith. That's what Daniel did. He made a promise to the king that was foolish if there was no God. If God is not actively involved in the world, Daniel is going to die. Not metaphorically, literally going to die that's faith like daniel to truly follow jesus we have to put our lives in his hands and you and i are entering a season where that is being tested god tells you not to hoard but smart people hoard when lean times are coming right i mean pharaoh did it in egypt but do you believe in daily bread or do you believe you're on your own just like the disobedience of our ancestors, most of our disobedience comes from a lack of faith. Our idols, too, come from this place. We don't really believe God is for us, so we hire people to stand for us, whether they be in uniform or they be in their red and blue ties making votes for us. We hire people to fight for us, mostly because we don't believe God will. Sometimes God fights for us by dying. Sometimes, like Paul, he fights for us by getting the people who fight for him put in prison and starved and whipped and stoned. And I know that doesn't look like winning, but he tells me it's winning and I have to believe it. We are afraid to truly put our faith to the test and actually behave the way Jesus tells us we can because he is Lord but we are afraid he won't come through 
And so we live like Satan is Lord. Satan's promises are very practical. They're very tangible, and they're very provable. They require no God to be true. Satan's wisdom is like common sense. If you kick a ball that turns out to be a rock, you will break your toe. That's the wisdom of the world, and it's, it's wise enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it works. It's provable. It's testable. It makes me believe him. God's word is different. Sin is most often a way of insulating ourselves, of protecting ourselves from the world. And that's why we have idols. Idols are safe places. Houses, locks, governments, nations, military, armies. These are safety mechanisms. This is what sin is too. Most of us get angry because it feels, feels protective. Sin always does, whether it's drugs, alcohol, anger, rage, lust, whatever it is, it's an insulation. It's like an anesthetic. Makes the pain lessen, protects us. Sin is most often a way of insulating ourselves, protecting ourselves, soothing ourselves, a way of hedging our bets, and that's how the idols get their place in our lives. It takes risk to take God at his word took risk. Now, Daniel had nothing to lose in a way because he was going to die either way. And you might say, if I was going to die either way, I'd certainly trust Jesus. But I'm hoping for a greater faith from you than that. Because Jesus already died. He already rose from the dead. We know things Daniel never knew. And still he was willing to take this risk. It takes risk to take God at his word. And there's no walk of true faith that won't put us at risk. So if you and I are looking for a way through this world that is safe we will compromise our faith. At some point, we will have to. Because the way of Jesus actually doesn't work without him. There's no way to follow the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus. If Jesus isn't real, you'd be foolish to try. But if there really is a God with us, and he really does promise that he'll be true to his word, then it's not putting God to the test to actually do what he asks you to do. It's putting the false prophets who told you you couldn't to the test. And that's what Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar was questioning. But you can be safe and sinful, or you can be vulnerable and holy, and there's really no in-between. The world is tearing itself apart, looking for hope. But we are of those who know that God is in the water with us. We are those who know that if we follow him, no matter how foolish it seems, even if we're fools to the world, we will be walking with Jesus, and that is the road of life. Do you believe? This is the faith that saves, and not just the faith that saves you, but the faith that Jesus has given to us to proclaim to the world, that they too might know the God we know, and they might not fear death or loss or suffering or pain, because we serve a God who transforms that into life and life everlasting. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. But he may lead you places you don't want to go. Will you still follow? If you say yes, the battle is out there. It's in your families. It's in your homes. It's in your places of employment. It's on the streets. It's in the public square. It's on Facebook and social media. That's the battle. And you are warriors. Fight like children of God and not like children of the world. 
and the kingdom will come just in you. And then one day, when God chooses to send the Son, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, it will come in front of all of their eyes. But long before that, you can bring the kingdom. Because he brought it to you. So take it to them.